Let's, Let's do go. it. Oh, my lordy be. Hope I have the right thing up here. Yes, I do. Does it say Wednesday? Yes. Hey, everybody. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. <laughs> Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. And I'm Kimberly Adams. This is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. You bring the questions and we'll provide the answers. You can get your question on the podcast by leaving us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART or you can email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. Question number one, go. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Kathy from Virginia Beach and I am calling about chat GPT. Is there any... Mm knowledge of software that it will come along to counteract and identify plagiarism from these AI bots. Mm-hmm. Thanks for making me smart. Yeah, You're doing this one? You're doing this one. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this was one of the first questions that a lot of people um, started asking when this really broke into the mainstream. And, and I'll point out that this tech has been around in iterations for a couple of years, but mainly just very techie people mm-hmm. were playing around with it. Um, but this question about plagiarism and, and whether or not chat GPT was going to be used to basically write every high school and potentially college essay ever is definitely a big concern. So much so that Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes actually did a story on this and the growing demand for software that attempts to detect whether or not chat GPT or these other generative AI programs have been used in written work. And sure enough, students are already trying to use it. Teachers have been able to spot it so far. Apparently, you know, it's uh, relatively easy to tell the difference between a smooth AI answer and a 17-year-old phoning it in (laughs) answer. But, you know, the tech's going to get better and teachers want tools to catch it. So companies like Turnitin that sell plagiarism detection software are really rushing to release uh, chatbot detection products that they can sell to schools. OpenAI, which created ChatGPT, has already released an online tool that rates how likely it is that a piece of text was written by a chatbot. But it doesn't work all that well yet. And it depends on how closely that text matches the writing that the chat bot was trained on. There are also some other tools in the works. A Princeton engineering student who was in Stephanie's story built a free app called GPT Zero. It works in a similar way. Uh, And so our wonderful producers here at Make Me Smart did an experiment testing out both of these tools, asking ChatGPT to write the answer to Kathy's question and plugged, uh, and then we got the answer, and then plugged that answer into both of these apps that are supposed to detect whether or not AI wrote it. And, you know, good news is, Both of them seem to think so. GPT-0 said your text is likely to be written entirely by AI. And then OpenAI's tool said the text was likely to be AI generated. However, after a little human editing, which you can imagine somebody might do if they're using this, uh, uh, GPT-0 said some parts may be written by AI and OpenAI's tool Still said, likely to be AI generated. Not so bad, but not completely accurate yet, although there's a lot of money to be had in this, and so a ton of other startups are working on it, too. Oh, yeah. It is a business opportunity. But I do have to say, and look, I was a goody-two-shoes when I was in high school, mm. but but the temptation has to be overwhelming. 
to use this. Yeah, thing. especially when you're staring at the blank page. Just right. something to get you started. Totally. And I can imagine that's how it's going to start. You know, it's like, well, let me just yep. get some ideas yep. and then I'll go back and write it in my own voice. Right. And, and where like, is yeah. the line, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, next up, we have an email from an anonymous fan, which is fine, although we'd love to hear your voice. You can be open and honest with us. We're nice. Um, but they wrote, how will the recent storms in California impact produce prices? Mr. Oh, California yeah. Mango. Yeah, good question. So uh, the San Joaquin Valley, the great uh, Central Valley, California, obviously the source of much of the produce and and vegetables that come from Uh, California, thus uh, the entire country. So here's the deal. We had those huge storms, right? Flooding and damages. 20-ish people were killed. AccuWeather uh, figures that uh, the preliminary estimate for the total damage and economic loss because of that storm is $30 billion. Monterey County. Yeah, I know. It's a lot of money. Monterey County, which is sometimes called the salad bowl of America. Lots of produce comes out of there. Losses estimated at $50 million. Farmers, though, say that costs are going to be higher. Here's the deal. So uh, a lot of the flooding um, could increase produce prices. Uh, crops obviously can't be planted until the water's gone away. Uh, you got to test for disease in those waters. The soil's got to settle, all kinds of stuff. The, the good part about this, actually, just parenthetically here, is that the snowpack in the Sierra is really, really deep now. So there won't be the water wars mm-hmm. in California, at least this year. Uh, that there have been in the past. There will be water for agriculture. There will be water for the cities. uh, So that's going to be taken care of. Um, It is obviously true, though, that um, water is a challenge out here long term. The economic health of the state depends on water. The economic health of the people who work in agriculture in this state depend on water. Um, So while we have lots of it now, you know, Low-income folks and immigrants who work in the agricultural sector, they're going to be suffering because this ain't going to last is the short answer. Yeah. And, you know, it's not going to do nice things to inflation either. And food price inflation has been one of the uh, most keenly felt issues, especially by people at the lower end of the income scale. So I wish we could say that that was going to get better. And and I have to say, like with the Fed, you know, raising interest rates, you know, to try to tamp down on inflation, that doesn't, you know, at all affect – natural disasters oh, that yeah, factor no. into inflation, you yeah, know? Totally. So some of that inflation you can't really do much about. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Next question from Kyle in Rhode Island. Here's what he said. It's an email. Every time I hear about solar panels, it's about how cheap they are now and how they're a no-brainer for residential homeowners. When I price a solar panel system, he says, with a local installer, the systems range from 14000 to $16,000 after tax credits. What am I missing? Not much. I mean, that lines up. <laughs> I mean, right. It's just, it is. I mean, that lines up pretty much with what we found, too. Uh, according to Energy Sage, a solar panel marketplace, the average cost of a solar panel installation is around $20,000. And that price depends on the size of the solar panels, the location, the type of panel, different tax credits, because some states have more t- additional tax credits on top of the federal tax credits. It's not uh, inexpensive uh, project by any means. But solar panels have become more affordable over time. Uh, According to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, the price of residential solar panels has actually dropped around 64% 
since 2010. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back in 2010, solar panels would cost about $50,000 on average to do one of those big installations. So why are they cheaper now than they were, even though they're still expensive? Uh, Better technology. The last two decades has you know, yielded more efficient, lighter, more compact solar panels. Solyndra didn't work out so well, but we still have been moving forward. Mm-hmm. Haven't heard that one in a while, have you, right. Kai? Well, so, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, very quick interjection. My brother was working at Solyndra when they got raided by the FBI. <gasps> Said it was quite something. Really? Yeah. I'll yeah. bet. Yeah. Wow. That's a story for another day. Yeah. Uh, also, for the solar companies not uh, rated by the FBI, <laughs> uh, lower manufacturing costs. <laughs> uh, China is actually the biggest solar panel manufacturer in the world right now and invested heavily in this industry uh, since the mid-2000s. And so that that just dropped prices all over the world by something like 80% by just like flooding the market with these cheaper solar panels. And then on top of that, you have the government subsidies. The government has been giving out these tax credits. And currently, there's a 30% tax credit until 2033 as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And then also factored into the overall cost of the solar panel installation and how much it costs you is the cost over time. So the idea behind having solar panels is that it will lower your energy costs. In some cases, depending on how sunny it is where you live, it may eliminate your energy bill. Um, CNET estimated that it would take about 10 years for average price solar panels, so about $20,000, to pay off if they met all of your mm. energy needs. Yeah. So, you know, are you going to keep them for 10 years? Are they going to work for 10 years? You know, it's, it's a tough balance, although, you know, Doing good for the environment also has, you know, a cost that you might, you know, factor into the balance. Um, They are not cheap. It's not a cheap project, but they have become cheaper. I mean, people do it with like uh, home equity line of credits Mm -hmm. and and all these other things. Um, And, you know, that all of these things might explain why there have been a rise in solar panel installation in recent years. Department of Energy, uh, the U.S. Energy Information Administration, says residential solar installations rose 34%. Let me add a caveat. However, please be careful with some of these solar panel installations. My mother was trying oh, to get wow. solar installed on her house and it turned out to be quite the scam. Luckily, huh. she was able to get out of it. But just, you know, somebody going door to door, praying on the... Oh, man. Don't, my mother doesn't listen, so I can say this. Praying on the elderly. <laughs> um, and, you know, so just... You know, vet, if, if this is a project that you're going to do, just vet, 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 vet. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Real quick, for those who might not have been up to speed on the solar wars of the early 2010s, Solyndra was a company that got uh, loans co-signed, half of a billion dollars worth of loans co-signed by the Obama administration. There was fraud involved. The FBI raided him. My brother, by the way, was not involved in the fraud. He has since moved on, just, <laughs> yes. just for the record. And and they looked very different from other yeah. solar panels. Yeah. They looked like those fluorescent tubes, yep. you know, that yep. are in like industrial lights the they looked the solar panels were that shape and so it's like oh they're round they can get sun from all angles exactly right. and it's much more efficient and this that and the other it was not didn't, at all didn't anyway. work out that way didn't yeah. work out all right next up one that i'm sure you're going to love kai a yeah, history buddy. question yep. hi this is Susanna from Cathedral City California oh. long time listener multiple time caller <laughs> I was just listening to the Wednesday show, and it made me think of the question, where 
did the name blue-collar and white-collar workers come from? Thank you. Bye. Wow. All right. So full credit for the answer to this one goes to, to Courtney and Antonio because I uh, didn't know this. So here's the deal. It goes back to the early part of the 20th century. They consulted an etymologist. Uh, those two did. His name is Barry Popick. And he credits it to Upton Sinclair, the author who used mm. white collar to describe uh, clerks back then, pencil pushers, basically, desk workers, mostly male, had to wear white collared shirts to work. Right. Blue collar, on the other hand, uh, comes into usage uh, about 1924 ish, give or take, uh, appeared in the local newspaper in Iowa. The paper proposed. And here it comes. If we may call professions and office positions white collar jobs, we may call the trades blue collar jobs. Now, that's the origin. How they have come to be applied today are completely different, obviously, because uh, the nature of work in this economy is completely different. But. It is a useful political trope, which you hear politicians use all the time. Republicans and Cough last night. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, State of the Union was, was a good one, right? Joe Biden considers himself a blue-collar guy and talks about blue-collar jobs all the doggone time. Yeah. What's the balance, if, if you know off the top of your head, and if not, I'm sure we'll look it up later and figure it out. What's the balance of blue-collar versus white-collar? That's a great question. I have, I have right no now. idea. I have no idea. That's a great question. Because I remember question. one time I, somebody was talking about um, coal miners and how there's like always this trope of going to visit the coal miners mm-hmm. and, you know, helping them out. And there are like apparently fewer coal miners in America now than there are solar panel right, installers. Right, 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 right. You know, yep. and so there's, yep. you know, these – workers that are held up as sort of the embodiment of the blue collar worker, you know, aren't necessarily as representative as they used to be. Um, it's funny about that quote from the paper, the Iowa newspaper about calling the trades blue collar mm-hmm. jobs. When I was picking um, my college and college degree and I wanted to study journalism, my dad was like, you need to also get like a real degree because journalism oh, is man. a trade, not oh, a really? not a academic that's study. So he was like, that's a, that's a trade and a skill. It's not an academic course Thanks, of study. You dad. need to get a degree in something else. <laughs> that's like, great. So I double majored in political science. Yes, because that's, you know, just so useful out there in this modern skills-based economy today. Sorry. Apologies to all the political science majors. I studied it in college. I was a history guy. Anyway, oh, my Lord. On that note, we are out of here. What do you want to know Wednesday is in the books. If you have a question for us about business or tech or this economy or honestly anything that's on your mind, you know how to get a hold of us. 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART. Or make me smart at marketplace.org. We respond to both. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker, Ellen Rolfus, Ellen Rolfus, who I sit next to in the D.C. bureau sometimes, <laughs> writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bonner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital and On Demand. Got it. You did it right before the fade, so you're good. There you go. It counts. You got it. It counts. It counts. (laughs) Because that's how I measure my life.